Welcome to Becoming Multiplanetary, and thank you for listening. Today, we will be talking about space tourism in the near future. This is actually the first of what will be a three-part episode, and in this one, we will talk mostly about Blue Origin, but also about the origins of space tourism, some of the history behind it, and some key things like, for example, what types of space tourism there are, and the difference between launch providers and launch brokers. But first, we have an important announcement to make, and that is we have a brand new website that has gone live. Check us out on totalspace.net. And before we get started today, let's first introduce our hosts. I am Kage, one of your co-hosts for this episode, and with me today is another Space Nut. Hi guys, I'm another Space Nut. Thanks for joining us today. Hi everybody, I'm Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Uh, got a wonderful episode for you this week. Kage, do you want to tell them what it's about? On Becoming Multiplanetary, we talk a lot about how humanity will eventually leave Earth to permanently settle on other planetary bodies and space stations. Previously, this was driven by nationalism, such as during the space race to be the first nation to land on the moon, and then later as a sort of anti-nationalism, such as the multinational cooperation to build and live aboard the International Space Station. But today, those reasons do not seem to be the biggest driver anymore. Instead, it now seems to be largely driven by capitalism and profitability. And depending on how you look at it, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Take, for example, the airline industry. Prior to this pandemic, the reason why airline travel is so ubiquitous and usually affordable is due to constant demand from ordinary customers. The demand is so high that even small startups have been able to enter the market, like EasyJet, Ryanair, Spirit Airlines, JetBlue Airways, and so many others. Go back a few decades, and this was not always the case. But with increasing demand came increasing options and decreasing costs. Tourism largely drove this forward, and the same may likely be true for space tourism too. Indeed, space tourism may very well be the thing that ends up leading to humanity becoming multiplanetary. But before we get into the types of space tourism and the launch providers and brokers, what do you uh, folks think? Will space tourism get humanity permanently off this planet, or do you think it will be some other factor? Rich, let's start with you. So, in very recent memory, of course, we've got the uh, the Blue Origin New Shepard launch that just happened recently, and we know that they're pushing for that space tourism angle. Uh, we know that the you know, that's one of the reasons that the Shepard has so many, uh, sorry, not so many, has such large windows on its capsule is is for the space tourism aspect. So, um, Nut, did you watch that launch? I did. Uh, very windy landing. Yeah, I noticed it sort of drifted off to the left, didn't it? And it, even though the the webcaster said it landed right in the middle. Yeah, that landing was uh, when I when I saw it coming in, and it was it was a good like fifteen degrees almost uh, uh, off center, and um, I, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, just like, oh god, oh god, they're gonna lose it, they're gonna lose it. <laughs> Thankfully, they didn't, but ooh, that one looked hairy. The new Shepard's becoming quite reliable at this point for as much as we insult Blue Origin, as you correctly point out, they are focusing on space tourism. 
and they've spent a long time trying to make this a reality. Make no mistake, they are going to be doing it. You know, I've seen several examples of mannequins, Skywalker, and several science payloads making it over the common line and experiencing weightlessness due to arriving in space. You know, that there's definitely a market for it. As you were saying about the super rich on the matter, I sort of feel it's a necessary evil. It's only once, you know, like as, as you were saying regarding airline travel, in its infancy, it was government only, and we've seen that with rockets, uh, they're government only, and now we're starting to see them transition over to the private sector, the super wealthy, and uh, that's just, you know, in, in the 1930s, that's what air travel did, and it's quite important to look at that and see the footsteps of where companies like Blue Origin are going. Right. And on that note of costs, actually, let's let's go ahead and get that elephant out of the room. So with the costs of uh, space travel or space tourism uh, as it's uh, as it currently stands, it is extremely high, but it also has a real potential to bring a lot of income to that market and eventually drive those costs down. So if you take, for example, uh, UBS, formerly known as the Union Bank of Switzerland, they estimated in 2019 that the space tourism market has a potential market value of three billion U.S. dollars in the next decade. Space industry consultancy Northern Sky Research sets this estimate a little bit higher, around three point four billion U.S. dollars. And UBS surveyed more than six thousand high net worth individuals, which are people with a net worth of more than five million U.S. dollars, about specifically flying with Virgin Galactic and. Of those over 6,000, about 1,200 of them, about 20%, said they are likely to purchase a ticket on Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2. Virgin Galactic has sold about 600 tickets to passengers so far at a price between 200,000 and 250,000 US dollars each, although the company expects it could increase its prices substantially for the first commercial flights, but those may come down eventually. And speaking of Blue Origin, they have said that their ticket pricing, which has yet to be determined, may be around the same prices as other competitors, as Jeff Bezos has stated. So if you compare this to the first seven space tourists, whose seats were over 20 million US dollars each, that's a significant drop. While it still is in the hundreds of thousands of US dollars range, it's coming down quite significantly and actually getting to a point that when you have enough super rich people buying these, eventually it's going to start driving up demand for less super rich people to the point that these could even be tickets that may cost somewhere in the few tens of thousands of dollars. And that's even something that Elon Musk has stated that he hopefully wants to get space tourism costs down to a point where it would be not much different than buying a very nice first-class ticket on a modern-day airline. Yeah, Elon Musk said, you, if you're the first guy to go to Mars, it's going to cost you $10 billion. If you're the one millionth, it's going to cost you a few thousand. Right, exactly. So, now that we get costs out of the way, let's first talk about the types of space tourism and the difference between launch providers and brokers. And this will set the stage for the rest of what we're about to talk about. So first, there are currently three kinds of space tourism, suborbital, orbital, and lunar. They're pretty self-explanatory, but in short, suborbital is typically just a straight shot up and down, whereas orbital will circle the Earth a few times. Pretty simple, right? And lunar, well, you can guess where that one will go. 
Although, right now, there are not any known plans to land tourists on the moon, but rather just have them slingshot around it, although that may change in the not-too-distant future. We'll talk next about the launch providers and brokers, but first, let's discuss those three types. So, how about you folks? Would you be a space tourist, and which kind would you opt for? For me personally, I think it's a toss-up between suborbital and orbital. If suborbital is the only thing within my affordability range, I think I'd be happy with that just to be able to pass the Karman line and say that, yeah, I'm officially an astronaut, maybe officially, I don't know, that's that's still up in the air. Um, but if orbital were available at a comparable or affordable price, I might opt for that too. What about you? So for me personally, uh, if I was able to get my weight under control and uh, get get a bit more healthier than I am right now, and if the finances weren't an issue, I would want to visit the lunar surface in a base. I would actually want to be on a different celestial body, even if it's just like for <clears throat> maybe like a, I don't know, a month or something. Um, to be able to say, you know, I've been on a completely different celestial body. I've hung around there, chilled out. You know, it's it's really even the thought of it to me is just like, wow. I mean, space is space. I'm excited at the prospect of the potential for people such as us to go in any capacity. I encourage it from any type of company, whether that's just suborbital or whether that's trips to the International Space Station, O'Neill Cylinders, you name it, we need to be out there in space. Yeah, I fully agree. So, as mentioned, there are launch providers and there are brokers. Launch provider is the one that, well, provides the launch service, facilitating the means to get up into space and safely return to Earth, whereas a broker works with launch providers to fill their seats, much like uh, tourism agencies here on Earth. So right now there are three main launch providers competing in space tourism, which are Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX. Maybe four if you also count the Russian space agency Roscosmos, who was previously the only launch provider for space tourism, but they have since stopped that after the space shuttle was retired in 2011. There are also three main orbital brokers, which are Space Adventures, Axiom Space, and Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic doesn't actually provide an orbital launch service, so they also seek to broker that for the launch providers that do provide orbital launch services. Space Adventures was previously the broker for Roscosmos and has recently signed one of two space tourism deals announced by SpaceX, that other deal being signed by Axiom Space, which is also the broker behind Tom Cruise going to the International Space Station to film scenes for a future Mission Impossible movie. And I think I'd like to actually pause here for a second to talk about that last point. Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible aboard the ISS. That's, um, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that? So as far as I'm aware, currently what it looks like is there is a director, Tom Cruise, and a production agent, I would imagine likely a cameraman, booked as well as a private NASA astronaut that's playing mission commander. Uh, the flight scheduling is AX-01. It symbolizes the first commercial flight of a crew dragon. And And for me... Like, the first question that's in my mind is, what the heck are they doing with the astronauts that are already on board the ISS? Are they just going to, like, huddle them into the corner or something? Be like, here, you just stay out of the way there whilst we film. 
<laughs> I wonder if they're just going to, like, stuff them into a Soyuz capsule because, I mean, they're so roomy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think they'd do that somehow. I, I, I think they would um, politely tell them where to go. Yeah, I mean th this this whole thing. It's just, I mean, it's cool. It's it's a uh, interesting way to kind of you know kickstart space tourism again. Since the last time that that happened was in two thousand nine, um, but it's just it's weird. I don't know. It, it just it's it's just weird to me. I think. But thanks to space tourism, it has become one of the pillars of the new as everybody's calling it now, Space Race 2.0. Um, it is one of the pillars that's driving that. Um, obviously, you have mining and other things as well, and, and research and whatnot. But space tourism is playing a part, however small or large, in this scheme. Yeah. And Warhawk, one of our patrons in our Discord, actually asked a uh, really interesting question. Uh, what will be the gravity indicator for the Tom Cruise launch? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, that would be uh, that'd be an interesting thing to speculate. But uh, <laughs> I got one for you. What's that? It's a face mask, like an actual other person's face mask, like he does in the other Mission Impossible films. <laughs> yes. Clever play on words, sir. Yeah. Or, yeah, uh, as Warhawk said, it could be Tom Cruise himself. Maybe, like, one of those little Funko Pop bobbleheads. Oh, no, that'd be cool. So, let's talk quickly about the space tourism that has happened. To date, only orbital space tourism has been done, and that has only been provided by Roscosmos's Soyuz and brokered by Space Adventures. In total, between 2001 and 2009, seven space tourists have flown aboard eight space flights to the International Space Station. The first space tourist was Dennis Tito, an entrepreneur, in 2001 aboard Soyuz flight TM-32, but he returned shortly after aboard TM-31. After Dennis Tito, there were Mark Shuttleworth, who's the founder and CEO of Canonical, which is the maker of Ubuntu Linux, in April 2002 aboard Soyuz TM-34. Gregory Olson, an entrepreneur, in October 2005 aboard Soyuz TMA-7. Anosei Ansari, co-founder and chairwoman of Prodea Systems in September 2006 aboard Soyuz TMA-9. Charles Simonyi, creator of much of Microsoft Office in April 2007 aboard Soyuz TMA-10. And he was also the first repeat tourist flying again aboard Soyuz TMA-14 in March 2009. Richard Garriott, video game developer and entrepreneur in October 2008 aboard Soyuz TMA-13. And Guy Lilberte, ah, uh, nope, that's wrong. I ran that. And Guy Lilberte, a uh, billionaire businessman and poker player, in September 2009 aboard Soyuz TMA 16. And I want to say, if memory serves, there was a member of either NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys that also was a space tourist, but I actually couldn't confirm that. Is that just a. Uh, Mandela effect moment that I'm having, or did that actually happen? It was Lancus Bass. He hasn't given up on his dream of space travel. Um, Dave Koninsky uh, joined the 2002 Russia mission to the International Space Station. He was in Ensing. Uh, he was certified by both NASA and the Russian space program after several months. Several months of cosmonaut training. Lance Bass, the name of the person you're looking for. Ah, uh, yes. And did he actually fly or no? 
Yeah, he did. He was certified uh, 2002 mission to the International Space Station. Ah, okay. So my uh, information was wrong. There were more than seven space tourists. So it seems. Interesting. So, we talked about uh, brokers and launch providers, but let's focus on one in particular for this week. And this is actually going to be a special week because we will be talking about Blue Origin specifically on this episode and in the upcoming Friday release of Deep Dive, Miko will also be talking about Blue Origin. So, on January 14th, 2021, Blue Origin launched its 14th successful mission and that was actually the first launch of, I think it was uh, called uh, NS-4 was the rocket. The previous rocket that they had uh, launched seven times, and this was actually a brand new one. I mean, the new Shepard architecture, I feel, is becoming more and more reliable with each flight. You know, people are mocking Blue Origin, and they do seem a little bit slow to be getting off the ground. But that being said, they are getting there. I have a funny feeling that's part of the long game, and I think the commentator alluded to this a little bit during the NS-14 stream. She was saying about how technology for future... um. Uh, future components are being proved out on flights as they do them. Now, I know SpaceX kind of do this thing as well, but I think there's a little bit more to what she said about that. As the way that she said it, it's almost like as if once they reach a certain point, they've got everything ready and a new Glenn is just going to pop out of nowhere. I mean, we've seen components for the new Glenn. I wouldn't put it past them to have a new Glenn up and produce very soon. I get what you're saying. They do tend to be more of the approach of, hey, this is what we did recently, than, hey, this is what we're going to do like we seem to be seeing. So which do you think is going to happen first? Is New Glenn going to be unveiled, or will there be the first private flights aboard uh, New Shepard? I think we'll see New Shepard flights continue before we see New Glenn. I genuinely believe that Blue Origin are close to human certification. Yeah, I, I concur with that on that one. I, I <clears throat> If they were to unveil the new Glenn, it could potentially uh, sort of steal the thunder of the new Shepard away from the space flights. Um, so I think they're going to want to get new Shepard established as a space flight provider first. And then once that's established and people are actually going up in it, then I think that's when we'll start to see the new Glenn being unveiled. I think you have a fair point there. Um, and that's actually one of the things that I find really kind of fascinating about Blue Origin is that if you look at SpaceX, for example, they do everything quite out in the open. They, they love the publicity. They love that uh, people are talking about them, uh, doing uh, YouTube streams and so forth. And they set up so many cameras on all their flights that you can uh, make sure that you get that uh, that angle that all the fans want to see whereas you look at Blue Origin and they are the complete antithesis of that that's other than New Shepard they are doing everything ultra secret and you, you might be right that uh, they, they might even manage to get human certification for New Glenn before they even unveil the rocket to the public, and they're just like, oh, boom, here you go, here's a new uh, super heavy rocket, oh, and it's already human certified, and it's already on the flight pla uh, pad, and uh, oh, there it goes. Just all of a sudden, right then and there, which that's that's kind of uh, 
strange, uh, especially considering we've gotten so used to how SpaceX is doing things and has, has set that bar so high. Well, I was literally just looking at the comment thread on the NS-14 launch and quite a few of the comments are like, why haven't you put a camera on the capsule already? You know, because the only camera we had was the tracking camera. I mean, we get the drone camera as well, which is unique to Blue Origin launches. The one thing I will say in their favour is that because SpaceX launch out of the cave, there's a lot of restricted things that just couldn't possibly I mean there's a drone in the air, but Blue Origin launching out of the New Mexico site means that they can put a drone in the air. And I always love to see the Blue Origin drone shot of the launch. But there's a good point there that you made about the in-cabin camera. And while, yeah, the drone shots are pretty fantastic, especially that uh, one that they showed where it was literally right above the rocket and the rocket launches, and then it just kind of quickly moves a little bit south of it and then just watches the rocket pass it. That was a fantastic shot, but you're absolutely right, Rich, that um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they haven't shown anything within the cabin yet especially when during the last uh, cast they were talking about how they upgraded the interior, added new communications uh, systems, added new uh, screens uh, for the seats so that people could be in constant communication with, uh, with ground control and so forth. And they talk about being able to uh, look out the windows as the uh, rocket does a slow roll as it ascends, and yet they don't show it. Or perhaps they have been showing that just to the select audience that they are trying to get to buy the first tickets. Well, yeah, that's true. You know, on inquiries, they could send some video footage if they have it. But you'd think that in order to get generic interest anyway, you, they would release that publicly. Right. So right now, the current estimate is that one seat aboard the New Shepard capsule will cost at least 200000 US dollars. But how many flights do you think it'll take before that gets down to something that would be a little bit more affordable for the uh, everyday person? I think it is in part of how many flights, but I think it's more in part to do with the reliability, the servicing. They need to be, you know, actively servicing these things and seeing how much damage they take with each flight and what needs done. The more that they can get on top of that, the more you're going to see that price come down. But they have already had some flight-proven hardware for uh, quite some time. I mean, with the uh, NS3 vehicle, that flew seven times. Yeah, but at the same time, right, the, the main factor of cost in a ticket for a, a, a rocket is how many times can that rocket be reused? And like I said, as they're proving more hardware and developing more hardware, eventually they're going to come up with hardware which is going to have more flight hours, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, flight, flight hours capable on it than what the current iteration is. So as we see, it was the same with airplanes. The first airplanes, they weren't all that great. They could only travel so far. But as the technology got better, we built better aircraft, and as such, they were able to be, uh, you know, go further, go longer. They were, um, they were able to take more people, and as such, all these things factored into bringing that airline ticket price down. It'll be the same with rockets. I mean, I agree. I think we need to see this gradual integration from super rich down. 
the ladder. And I'd say that's at least a 10-year progress to answer your timeline question, Cardi. I would say at the very minimum 10 to 20 years before, say, the average Joe that works down the road at his local mill could afford to go to space for four minutes with Blue Origin. And then what about aboard the SpaceX Dragon capsule, because if we look comparatively speaking, you have Blue Origin, which is a suborbital uh, space tourism launch. It's just going quite literally straight up, straight down. And SpaceX is actually looking to market uh, sending people into full orbit where they'll go around the Earth uh, maybe a couple dozen times before they come back into uh, Earth's atmosphere. The Dragon capsule has 10 uses. You know, think about after three uses, the Dragon capsule has already made its uh, production money back. At that point, SpaceX are back in the positive at just three launches. At seven launches, they could put any price on and still be making more profit. You know, we've seen Elon Musk aspiring to lower the price of spaceflight. This could be an option, you know, reducing it to uh just a few hundred thousand for uh, seats on a dragon that's coming towards the end of its usable life and stuff but i think um his target was for uh, uh, affordability i think his target was more towards uh, starship than it was the dragon capsule if i'm not mistaken but, I mean, when everybody's talking numbers with the Starship about this magical number of 100 that I've seen some skeptics of the Starship pull apart, and I've seen so many members of Team Space advertising so profusely these designs of 100 um, seats on a Mars-bound Starship, you know, it's unrealistic. I would agree with some of the skeptics out there in saying I would imagine for comfortability, it's going to be closer to 10 passengers on a Mars-bound one. But with the Earth-to-Earth -Earth variant, you know, that is technically an orbital flight. We might see seats of 100 on those. And then at that point, the cost does come down. If you can fly 100 passengers at a time, whether that's just a transport for the super rich initially, and then once again trickling down, you know, uh, 100 passengers at a time, that cost is recuperated much quicker. And then it becomes a case of after that, once you've got the price of a Starship ticket to go anywhere on Earth cheaper than an airline ticket, what happens to aircraft? Ooh, good question. You know, I, I actually find myself kind of uh, <laughs> cynically wondering that uh, there's there's now even a sub-economy class on some airlines, uh, a class below economy, and I'm wondering if, like, there are going to be uh, various kinds of classes similar to what you have on airlines uh, on things like uh, Starship and so forth, where... Uh, if you look at how economy and, uh, I guess, sub-economy charge people for, like, oh, you, you want to be able to even bring a handbag on board, well, that's going to cost you. You want to have uh, a thing of water, oh, that's going to cost you. I wonder if they're going to charge people for the right to be able to exit their seat and float around for a little bit. I mean, you know, if they end up charging them for that, you know, for food or whatever, it's not like they can just pop out the hatch to the nearest Bob's Burgers, you know? <laughs> Yeah, just throw in a parachute and uh, uh, do a uh, Felix Baumgartner uh, <laughs> really, really long parachute dive. Looking at the Earth-to-Earth -Earth variant, it's an hour between setting off and arrival anywhere on the planet. You know, like, I don't feel there'd be a trolley service for food. I would imagine there may be a weightlessness zone, uh, but they would probably want to maximise the amount of seating capacity that they have. 
and you wouldn't be orbital for very i mean in comparison to blue origin you would but you wouldn't be very orbital for you know like a, a really good amount of time you'd have fun for sure so what you're saying effectively is there wouldn't be enough time in a single flight for everybody to have a shot at being weightless i would imagine they'd maximize the available seating area and first and foremost try and maximize on its usability they're not going to linger around in orbit so that everybody can get a turn floating around trying to make money and, and recuperate the cost to a point where it is cheap enough to get people to mars and to uh the moon and other celestial bodies so separating it separating it more as a utility maximization versus a uh, tourism uh, just a pure tourism sort of thing like what blue origin is seeking to do yeah yeah, I could see that. But you know, this this theoretically means that you could effectively get a job anywhere in the world and have a commute from anywhere in the world. Pretty crazy thought. It is, isn't it? Wow, you just you just made me think about like what would that be like of yeah, I just got a job in London, but you live in New York. Yeah, I'm gonna stay in New York. Oh, so you're telecommuting? No, I'm I'm gonna be going on site to London. Oh wow, those flights are gonna suck. No, I'm just gonna hop on board uh a uh uh, a <laughs> starship <laughs> from my commute. I mean, Elon claimed that you'd be able to set off from having breakfast with your family in London in the morning, stop for afternoon tea in New York, and then on for dinner in Japan, and then be home in time to tuck your children in. That's just incredible. I mean, now we've gone beyond the realms of space tourism to just space travel normalization. But that's the key, isn't it? Once you can normalize space travel and everybody's doing it, the cost does get cheaper because everybody's doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's 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 a great thing to, to strive for, but it's also just, it's moving so fast in that direction. It's, uh, it's mind-boggling, really. I agree. I think between 2020 and 2030, we're going to see an incredible amount of space flight changes. So one of our uh, listeners and patrons, Susie, actually makes a very good point. Um, she says that let's not forget Starlink is being used as a funding platform for SpaceX and also could be used to offset prices for any particular space tourism. That's absolutely true. And when you look at just how much uh, income SpaceX has had over very recent years, uh, they stand to make an obscene amount of money uh, when it comes to Starlink, not only selling it in the United States, where it'll have the uh, first and foremost access, but around the world uh, to not only individuals, but also to uh, government agencies and uh, military uh, entities and so forth that need that kind of uh, constant connectivity with uh, high bandwidth. So there's going to be uh, not only the uh, sheer volume of private contracts, but also the very high dollar value uh, public entity co uh, contracts that they'll have. So that's that's going to be a lot of money. So on the 18th of September, Blue Origin posted job listings for Orbital Habitat Formulation Lead, suggestive that they're going to follow on from earlier disclosed plans to build in-orbit space stations. I think they want to go for the O'Neill Stillinder uh, rotating space station concept and try and create off-world uh, leisure destinations in space. Yeah, i actually seen a uh, concept drawing of the concept that you're referring to, Nut. 
it basically looks like a giant long tube attached to a wheel, effectively. Um, and the idea is, within that giant long tube, you have a strip, basically strip worlds, where you, if you think like the, the Halo ring world, but break it, turn it into a giant strip, and then cut it into segments, then you've got four strips running along the inside of this tube. Um, and then on the wheel part at the end, that is, in essence, a, effectively a tiny little ring world in and of itself. And these are going to have lots of greenery and stuff to have their own biomes. Uh, it's a very, very ambitious plan. I've seen the concept designs for it, and they are breathtaking. They've started designing a habitat that can be put on orbit, uh, compatible with the new Glen. This all naturally comes off the back of NASA announcing that they will support companies that are trying to build uh, business and revenue in low Earth orbit. So, you know, off the back of that, we're seeing things like Starlink subsidies, where SpaceX have been paid a lot of money because they're utilising low Earth orbit for business. And this sort of follows suit, really. Uh, part of the job details of what was listed by Blue Origin include uh, identifying partners and potential customers customers uh, which is quite interesting you know there is concept stations by other companies that we'll talk about in the future people like gateway foundation and the like that have proposed um partnering with blue origin as well but in essence bezos's dream is to see uh, millions of people living and working in space yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the businesses are—they're trying to get business up in low Earth orbit. So effectively, there's reason to go there. But the the potential of having those kinds of habitats up in space for science, research, and even if if you think STEM, you know, a lot of people say STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. But a lot, you know, there's even more people now saying STEAM which include the arts, and I think that, I mean, even Meizawa, right, with the, the Dear Moon project, launching artists, um, I think we're going to see a lot of the arts getting involved with space. Uh, I can see it, I can see the, the stations themselves being designed by uh, steam enthusiasts, very much so. And imagine on-orbit arts academies and the like, you know, we are just years away from the ability to say, okay, it is an on-orbit arts academy, you are booking a two-week stay, and you can just sit and be inspired with musical instruments, you know, and this kind of thing. Imagine the artwork that can be produced from that. Dude, if, if I could ever have that happen, I would cry. I would straight up cry. Like, just being able to, to go into space, and I'm, I'm no artist by any means, but being able to sit in that kind of an environment and just have whatever inspiration may come or just float around in leisure uh, for a while and just stare in awe and and just in, uh, soak in everything that I'm seeing like that would hell you don't even have to bring my uh, my body back to earth just I'm, I'm good I'll, I'll, I'll die up there I'll, I'll be happy <laughs> well as another space nut keeps saying it's his destiny to die on Mars it is my destiny to die on Mars. I feel safe on Earth for that very reason. And I can't die here because it's not my destiny. I'm safe while I'm on Earth, but I'll die on Mars. And on that happy note, let's go ahead and uh, wrap it up here for this episode. So thank you all once again for listening to Becoming Multiplanetary. I am one of your co-hosts, Kage. 
I've been Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Thank you for joining us all again this week in the first of what is going to be three parts of space tourism. Uh, today we covered mostly Blue Origin uh, with a hint of SpaceX here and there. And in the upcoming parts, we'll be covering Virgin Galactic and SpaceX on their points of space tourism. And as always, at the end of each episode, I always like to give a big thanks to all our Patreons. We have a few new ones again since last I read them out. So here we go through the list. We have Adrian Moisa, Jordan Wright, Howard Walker, Sammy Oscuro, What About It, Jishwan and Sebastian, Gio Pagliari, Framrick, Susie R., and Marco. Thank you all very, very much for your support. Uh, it, it, you know, none of you have to do this. It's, it's absolutely humbling for us to, to receive this support. And it's also, in a sense, validating because, you know, we know that you like what we do. So we're going to keep doing it. So I've been another space nut, and thank you for joining us for this Becoming Multiplanetary. Remember to check us out on Twitter and Instagram. And one last thing. Uh, as mentioned uh, at the start of this podcast, we have a new website that is live, so do please check us out on totalspace.net. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.